0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast, the MDCT CTA 2012 Challenges and Opportunities, and this was a talk I gave at our course this past weekend in Florida, our 28th annual CT Cutting Edge course, and if you were there, I'm glad you could attend, and if you weren't there... Well, here's a chance to listen to the lecture and here's a chance also to know that February 14 to 17, 2013, we'll be back at the Disney Yacht Club and it's never too early to sign up. So anyway, what I looked at this was sort of a couple of slides I've shown you before talking about CT and talking about how you need to be able to see things and recognize things. And it's only after you've learned that, that you can actually find things. And I speak about the whole course. We had 32 lectures. We reviewed a lot of interesting things and topics so that you really um, make yourself aware of what you can see and what it means. And I always make the point, if you look at this Waldo, you don't see Waldo, but once you know where he is or what to look for, there he is, in fact, and it's very easy to see. I also make the point that looking at CT is like looking at many images where you may see something, but not understand exactly what you're looking at, if you look at this uh, geyser coming out of the bear can or the airplane landing on a wire or this person with the world's largest trail of cigarette smoke or this midget in the hand or the statue catching the airplane, you begin to understand what I'm talking about, that what you see isn't always what you think you're seeing. The other thing is you want to make certain you don't drive the clinicians crazy, kind of Larry David style, by recommending a thousand different studies or never being able to come down specifically as to what the images indeed show. Now when you think about it, our job as radiologists is transferring mission-critical information to the referring doc for managing the patient. Uh, That's why radiology exists. It's our ability to look at the images, take data points, but make decisions. And a key word is making decisions. It's this mission-critical information that often defines the patient's eventual outcome. Now, one of the things uh, we know in CT, the last couple of years, CT has taken a lot of heat for being used too often, and often quotes like this: rates of ER use of CT have gone from two point eight to thirteen point nine percent over a period of twelve years. And then, of course, you say, "Wow, that must be terrible!" You've increased by a factor of over four the utilization. But even this article, Larson, does make the comment that in many ways, CT is ideal for the ER, rapid, minimally invasive, and high res imaging that quickly directs patients to further treatment when results are positive and provides assurance when the studies are negative. So again, the increased use may be better patient care. Another article looks more closely at this. This is an article from Mass General looking at how CT affects diagnostic certainty and management in the ER setting of abdominal pain, non-trauma. And what they looked at was the effect of CT on management decisions, diagnostic certainty and patient management. Well, very impressively, they found that the um, use of CT increased mean physician diagnostic certainty from 705 to 92%. Very impressive. Management plan was changed by CT in 42% of cases. Surgery was planned for 79 patients before CT, while a quarter of these patients were actually discharged after CT. So you can see massive impact both in terms of certainty and in terms of changing management. Very, very impressive. And the authors conclude, given current concerns about high health costs and radiation exposure with CT, it's critical for physicians to be able to weigh the risk of radiation and the cost of the exam against the benefits of CT. And based on their article, CT indeed was very valuable across the gamut of diseases by improving certainty and helping manage patients. And that's what we do best. Now, CT has evolved over the years and continues to evolve. I like to show a chart somewhat similar to this one, showing how CT's gone from single slice to four and how we've managed the last few years to go from 64, which basically is the minimum most people use these days, to dual source or uh, the GE high-res scanner. And one of the things that we saw at RSNA 2011, regardless of the manufacturer, the big focus on low-dose scanners. And that really is the highest focus these days. And that, indeed, is very important. When I asked the audience how many patients, how many people had better than 64 slice scanners or 64 or better, everyone said they had 64 or better. And it's a very important point. 64 and above we increased the slice numbers significantly. We also got the use of routine 3D and MPR imaging because these very thin slices were ideal. Now, with this improvement, the scan times have decreased, so the success at doing a good study has definitely increased. We can do now chest or abdomens in under a second with dual source imaging, for example. But spatial resolution still is typically in the 0.3 to 0.4 millimeter range. So that's not changed um, at all for the most part over the last couple of years. Again, the challenge with resolution a spatial resolution really is the dose. To double the resolution, you need to increase the dose by a factor of 16. Obviously we can't do that. There are different ways that people are thinking about fixing resolution, new detector materials, better electronics, post-processing algorithms, iris, sapphire are two good examples of this. Um, So we are looking at that very carefully. We also, also increase temple resolution because that will definitely help in some applications, particularly cardiac. Now, at this point, I felt it was worthwhile to talk about radiation because it's hard to give an opening talk on CT, looking at where things are and where things are going without discussing radiation dose, and recognizing that the issues with radiation are complex and long and argumentative amongst people, knowing that everyone would agree probably you should not be fitting shoes with x-rays anymore like they used to. But something like the airport scanners, 25,000 spins in the scanner is less than a chest x-ray, The uh, Pilots Association, any exposure is problematic. Interestingly, they don't worry about the solar flare-ups of flying across the Atlantic. They worry about this machine. Even though the FDA got involved and said that the risk was minuscule, and a um, physics professor at Arizona State showed that the risk of getting cancer from a scan is 1 in 30 million, which is less than being killed by lightning in any one year. So again, you got to think about, I don't think many people worry about getting hit by lightning, so I would not worry about going into that scanner. Now, the issues with radiation go back a few years in terms of their recent uh, uh, intensity. There were two articles, one by Einstein, one by Brenner, and they all revolved around cardiac CT, interestingly, and they spoke about lifetime cancer risk in this one article for a 20-year-old getting a cardiac CT or for an 80-year-old. And these estimates were really derived from risk models based on the Hiroshima experience. And so again, everything here is a risk model based on a number of assumptions, particularly the Hiroshima data, which is suspect to begin with. And Brenner, the same thing, talk about the fact that about... uh, Maybe 2% of cancers could be due to CT, although there's been no proof of CT causing even a single cancer. And he just extrapolates things out to the point of saying that one-third of CTs are unnecessary and on and on and on. And although the science of this article was not very good, although very much they made many assumptions that many people disagree with, the article still had a lot of weight. And it was interesting because everyone focused on the cardiac CT, even its initial form, was far less radiation dose than some of the nuclear medicine studies. So again, kind of selective perception. Now the FDA has gotten involved, which in some ways is a problem and in some ways is good. I think we're all on the same page. As long as the FDA is reasonable and works with the major societies and with the radiology groups to help patient care, I think it's wonderful. And the FDA has been doing a number of things very positively over the past couple years. The ACR, the RSNA, Rankin-Ray, many other organizations have also been very aggressive ACR white paper going back to 2006 had a number of recommendations addressing all of the interested parties from referring docs, through radiologists and technologists, through patients and physicists and vendors and regulatory agencies, and that everybody had a role to play in really optimizing dose, really understanding whether it's a vendor to make the lowest dose possible, or as a technologist, knowing how to use the systems correctly, or the radiologist, making certain that everything is done with the lowest radiation dose. Uh, Here was an article by Strauss talking about Image Gently. There's two campaigns, Image Gently and Image Wisely. Gently is on the kids, wisely is on adults. But again, in their 10 points, and I won't go through them, you could read them on your own, just simply the point about understanding that there is radiation, and there are issues with radiation. And again, making certain the right study for the right patient. In pediatrics, make certain the doses are appropriate for the patient's size. It's not a one-size-fit-all. And again, child-friendly, and working through the process is very important. And Verdun makes the point very nicely that an examination appears to have low-risk However, any risk, no matter how small, is unacceptable if the patient does not benefit. So, of course, that goes back to the point about doing the studies correctly and making certain that CT is the study of choice. Melcon makes the point that there are two issues with radiation. One, of course, is the potential risk from radiation, but the second is doing too low a dose so that the studies, not only a low dose, but they're low information. And his point was, you want to make certain you don't miss the diagnosis because of a poor quality study. And that could lead to more studies or all sorts of problems for that patient. So again, there's a balance between uh, equally important risks of excessive radiation and the risk of erroneous diagnosis. And very well said. Now, a recent article by Marin makes the point, although CT is a powerful tool for medicine, benefits are accompanied by risks, and radiologists must understand these risks and strategies available to minimize them, as well as the risks associated with contrast media during CT. And they estimated that the risk of cancer from radiation studies um, may not be correct. You see, we make the assumption of linear no-threshold model, but that model is not accepted by everybody. And in fact, many of the basic tenets of the article have been proven incorrect. And in fact, Marin makes the point to date there is no scientific evidence showing a causative relationship between CT radiation dose and cancer risk. However, we all assume the worst and need to minimize the dose for our patients. Article by Coakley talking about what can you do now? Well, review your protocols, Make sure CT is the right study. Do all of the things you can do with your scanner to get the lowest dose possible. And again, thinking around what you need to be doing becomes very important. And a simple step here is to review existing CT protocols to ensure the radiation dose are as low as possible. The number of phases is only what you necessarily need and not just too many phases to add nothing so this brings me up to the next part of the talk which is how do you design a ct protocol well there are a number of steps do you need a non-contrast ct what phases do you need and what are phases necessary for the right diagnosis or the right staging once you know that you can define your contrast injection protocol both in terms of volume and delivery you need to design the scan what's the kvp Is it 120? Is it 100? Is it 80? What's the MAS? Collimation, slice thickness, all of these are critical decisions. You also need to know how you prepare the patient. So let me speak about that a second. Is it oral contrast or intravenous, rectal, both, all three, all four, bladder contrast? And if you don't know, a lot of this information is on CTSUS, and hopefully you've seen our protocol section. And we have a new set of protocols. We've done this For the flash scanner and doing this with 64s and we're doing it for some of the other scanners as we speak. But here going through the different acquisition phases you would need, for example, in this application, pancreatic mass, showing you some of the parameters you would use in adult showing you the contrast and how it's delivered and when it's delivered, and then the post-processing aspects. But you need to have that on every one of your applications. You need to be very careful that the studies are done the same way every time. So you minimize dose and maximize quality. Now, I also mentioned on the protocols the use of contrast. So we talk about oral contrast for a second. There's three types um, of oral contrast. But we're going to talk about that as well as volumes and timing. So when you talk about oral, we talk about water, we talk about Omnipaque 350, and Volumen. So let's talk about um, Omnipaque first. And we're talking there about a positive contrast media, very well tolerated by patients. And in fact, patients do like it by a factor of 4 to 1 over any other contrast agent. Here was an article looking at patient satisfaction. Uh, Patients tolerated well, and uh, 81% preferred it to other contrast agents. So again, a very important contrast, has good transit time. We use it for cases like oncology, where we're looking at uh, many of the issues with nodes in the mesentery, it works out well. You can see it here with a lymphoma contrast in the mesentery. See it in 3D as well with a large mesenteric mass. I do like positive contrast when I'm looking for a leak or a fistula. Here's a great case of pneumoperitoneum. You can see actually in the duodenum second portion, there's a track and there's a fistula present. And you look carefully, there's free air and there's the perforation. Look at the contrast layering out within the fluid in the abdominal cavity, just a wonderful case of a perforated duodenal ulcer. And there the positive contrast indeed worked very nicely, showing you the entire process. When you look at the small bowel, water tends to be a contrast agent we use for dedicated small bowel imaging, whether it's for Crohn's, whether it's for ischemia, whether it's for uh, GI bleeding, though we also, as I'll show you, we use volumin. Water works nicely as a neutral contrast agent. You really can see the vessels well. So you can see here the prominent vasorecta in a patient with Crohn's disease. And when you look at the volumes over the MIPS, you can see the strictures better. But again, that neutral contrast, water works very nicely. The downside with water, and the only downside is, if a patient's not obstructed, water gets resorbed quickly, So, that can be a challenge, but in this case, you can see the strictures nicely. In this case, you can see the mass in the mesentery with calcification, desmoplastic reaction, classic carcinoid type tumor. And here it is again without any positive contrast material, but very good visualization of the bowel and very nice visualization of the changes. In the vasculature, particularly the involvement of the colic branches, middle colic off the patient's SMA, just very, very nicely seen. And you can see here as well. So we do get a very good look at the vasculature in the face of neutral contrast agents, something you'd have a problem with in the face of positive contrast agents. Now, we also do something called CT enterography. It's a neutral contrast, but it's different than just giving water. What this contrast does, volumen, it brings water into bowel. It has a lot of sorbitol in it, which can give you diarrhea. But most patients get very mild diarrhea, but a lot of fluid in the bowel. It distends the bowel with fluid. And the protocols typically are either giving two or three jars of this agent. And you give it over 10 minutes. So typically we're scanning about 30 minutes out. You can see nicely in this case, good visualization of the patient's small bowel. It looks a bit dilated, but volumen does dilate the bowel because it improves fold thickening and increases the amount of fluid within the bowel which you can see here, a nice example of polypoid lesions in a patient with polyposis syndrome in the duodenum, which can be very easy to miss on CT axials, very nicely shown in the 3D map. What else should I mention? Well, the last thing I want to talk about probably will be contrast. So let me just do this briefly. You go to CT As Us. We've just updated our contrast section. And you go to iTunes Store, and we have a new application, which is for free on CT protocols. And we have thousands and thousands of happy users. Well, things to remember with contrast. There's still a risk related to contrast, and we need to minimize the risk. Lower volumes of contrast, better hydration means less chance of sin in these patients, but it's still the third most common cause of hospital-acquired renal failure. It's more likely in diabetics, patients who are debilitated. Uh, Again, it's very important to recognize that most patients will not have any issues with contrast. Some will, and those who do, it can increase their hospitalization or create other uh, complications. We talk about the definition of sin: impairment of renal function occurring within three days after administration of contrast media in the absence of an alternative etiology or explanation. And we talk about greater than 25% increase or greater than 0.5 milligrams per deciliter. So again, very, very well-defined definitions for sin. And of course, once patients do get contrast-induced nephropathy and they develop renal failure, all sorts of hell breaks loose. Delay in discharge, permanent damage, dialysis, increased uh, patient mortality. So there are many different things to worry about. Now, I do worry in all patients, but especially in diabetics, patients with myeloma or older patients, which is why we're very particularly careful in those patients. Um, we talk about dividing patients into three groups based on their GFR with the high risk group being on the thirty GFR, moderate risk thirty to fifty nine, and the lower risk greater than sixty on the GFR. Many people still use creatinine levels, but no matter how you do it, the challenges to really make use of these numbers, again, as a challenge for example with these GFRs in that Thin older women tend to never have good renal function based simply on the measurements. So, you want to be very, very careful. Again, key things we do hydration before and after, try to avoid nephrotoxic drugs, minimize the volume of IV contrast, and again, selection of contrast media. In our practice, we use OmniPaque and VisiPaque. And principles with the lower uh, BUN creatinins, better GFRs, we're going to use. uh, uh, Omnipaque, and with patients who were challenged, we're going to use Visipaque. Okay, no problem about that. That's a very simple scheme. Um, I tend not to worry about you know, the creatinine levels per se in the sense, a good article published last year made the point that a lot of our data is very old based on other contrast agents, but I'll go to about 1.7 and 1.8 without any problems as long as the patient needs to study. Now, a couple other things I've read about recently, and let me finish up with them. One is using warmers for contrast. Most people said no. Warmers are complicated. JCO inspections. You need to keep logs. It does take time. It's not the money so much as the time. But this recent article by Davenport made the point that if you don't use warmers, you can increase uh, the... Uh, the extravasation rate and complication rate uh, when you have fast injections, so it does become very, very important. Look at this number. Discontinuation of warming did not appear to affect adverse events for iopanol 300, but was associated with approximately a tripling of extravasation, overall adverse events, for the more viscous iopamidol 370. So again, we like higher concentrations, so be very, very careful on that safety perspective. Uh, We do pre-medicate patients, it's often a question. Uh, We use a 24, 12, two hours of 50, 50, and 50 uh, prednisone, or sometimes 40 times three. Again, it's important to recognize uh, that patients who do get contrast reactions often get the same reaction they had before, so the breakthrough reaction is no worse. I should mention that we use a 2412 2 protocol. Many sites use a 1371 as listed here. Um, the majority of patients. Uh, injections in the pre-medicated patient with a prior breakthrough reaction did not result in a repeat breakthrough reaction. So here 88% had no problem. So really it's a small percent of patients who will get a second reaction if they're premedicated, but that second reaction is no worse than the first. Usually it's the same. But that means to me is if a patient had a contrast reaction, anaphylactic shock, the patient arrested, I am never giving contrast again. I don't care how much you premedicate, medicate That risk is always going to be there. Breakthrough reactions were usually similar in severity to the index reaction. Uh, breakthrough reactions are more likely to be moderate or severe in patients with certain risk factors. And they speak about select patients who in general are at a risk. Patients on steroids, particularly chronic steroid use, drug or severe allergies or allergies to form more allergens. Those things you need to think about. Last thing I'll comment on, recent article just published talking about myeloma, making the point that CT can be used in myeloma patients with IV contrast, as long as the patient's uh, B1 carotidin are normal, and the patient is well hydrated. So there are many different things people say, don't do it in myeloma. The answer is you can, and often you do need it. So what else? Advantages of 64-slice CT, spatial-temporal resolutions, and isotropic data sets, that's something you're going to have to stay tuned with and see in part two. Thank you very much.